Welcome to the Independent Idaho Podcast, a production of the Living Independence Network Corporation, or LINK. My name is Jeremy Maxand, and I am the Executive Director of LINK, as well as the host of the show. LINK is a regional center for independent living, and our mission is simple, to empower Idahoans with disabilities across the lifespan to live the life of our choosing. You can learn more about LINK at linkidaho.org. Our guest today is Sean Spence. Sean is an author and an activist who discusses his new book titled Breaking Barriers, Disability History in the United States. Let's get into it. Sean, welcome to the Independent Idaho podcast. How are you? I'm doing great, Jeremy. I'm really excited to be here to talk to you about some really cool things in the world of disability. I am so excited to talk to you about this book that you have written, Breaking Barriers, Disability History in the United States. I am as or more excited just to talk with you because you and I have known each other for, it feels like a long time, although we haven't seen or interacted with each, with each other for for many years because you had moved away from Idaho. So I'm just happy to, 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 to like, to talk with you and catch up. We, we would have met in probably 96 or 97. Oh my goodness. Oh my and goodness. We're old now. We are very old. I feel older every day. Um, but you're looking good. You're a handsome, handsome guy. You I'm got doing no, my best, man. you I'm got no complaints there. Um, well, you know, this is, the history of disability is absolutely fascinating. Um, you know, I yeah. think there's a lot of time spent on the modern narrative about about how the, eight, the the Americans with Disabilities Act passed and what that means. But there is a much longer, deeper, and richer history of human experience um, yeah. around disability that is often not talked about. And in fact, you in your book, which we'll get into. Um, mentioned that there really isn't a definitive work on the history of disability. Um, and so that was something it sounded like you were trying to tackle. Yeah, I really honestly, Jeremy, haven't been able to find another book at all, like the book that I've written. I've read many of the books that are out there on uh, related to disability history. There's a lot of really wonderful publications of one kind or another. Um, but I really haven't found one that tries to look at just this, you know, 200 plus year scope of the United States, the disability rights movement, the independent living movement, the people and the places and the events and the concepts, all of those things, really just like a good general survey of, of American history overall would be, there should be a hundred of those that are out uh, about disability history in the same way that there are about African-American history or women in history or, you know, any of these other underrepresented groups. They have such rich stories and the and disability history is exactly the same. I agree. I agree. Before we get into that, I want to I want to just talk a little bit about kind of where you came from, like how you ended up writing this book, that that journey. Um, your, your story and, sure. um, and, and I want to just open it up to you. Where do you, where do you want to begin? I'd love to know kind of where you were born and where you grew up and what that was like. Um, and then hear a little bit about your schooling and, and I know you ended up in Idaho, which you mentioned, and, and then back to the Midwest. And let's just talk a little bit about that because as you know, um, if, if we want to understand our individual biographies, it's really important to understand the larger history that we all yep. exist in and vice versa. So why don't we start there? Well, got started in Kentucky, spent the first 17 years of my life there, grew up as a, as a boy 
thinking that I was going to be a writer. That was my dream was to be a like the great American novelist. And so that does, you know, it was the first step to really where we are today, talking about writing a book on disability history. I went to school at the University of Missouri, Columbia, uh, because I thought I was going to be a journalist while I tried to make a living uh, before I was able to publish my first, you know, massively million selling novel. And um, then ended up getting a degree in history, which helps get me to this book that I've written. Uh, got married. My wife wanted to just be anywhere other than where she had grown up. And so I um, actually got into political campaigns out of college. And the easiest way for us to leave was for me to just go out on the open road doing campaigns around the country. And so in a roundabout way, that eventually brought me to doing a race in Idaho, which was where I was when you and I met. And we stayed in Idaho for about eight years um, doing politics of a variety of kinds and also getting involved in business and lots of community activism in a lot of ways. And when my wife and I got divorced, um, I just wanted to come back to Columbia, Missouri, where I live now. And so I went back on the national campaign trail uh, because that was the quickest way for me to make money leaving Idaho and slowly do a couple of races and work my way back over a couple of years to get back here to Columbia, Missouri. And here I am today and uh, very, very happy to be here in Columbia. I've been here for 15 or so years since I left Idaho, um, pretty soon after I left Idaho, about a year and a half after I left Idaho. And um, about in 2003, uh, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, which is, was really uh, my first major involvement with disabilities. I've been an activist for a lot of things, women, the LGBTQ plus community, uh, environmental things, all sorts of issues. I was a, you know, a, an activist for all ages, trying to help really anywhere that I thought I might be able to, and I loved it and, and did it. Uh, but didn't really do much at all with the disability community. Um, got diagnosed with MS, should have been diagnosed in 2000, three years earlier, but sometimes that disease is often hard to recognize. Mm -hmm. And that put me on the path to thinking about the world of disability, uh, how I might be involved in some larger sense, other than just being somebody who today uses a wheelchair. Um, I'm essentially a full-time wheelchair user. I'm a 95% wheelchair user. And um, that really was how I got to, you know, where I am today. And I've ended up writing this history book. And um, we can talk a lot more about that. But that's the thumbnail sketch of birth to guy in a wheelchair who thinks it's important to write about people and disability history. <laughs> Well, back up a little bit and talk about, you said you were in Kentucky, was it? Yeah. Yeah. For 17 years. So your first 17, what was yep. it like? Were you in a big town, a little town? What was it like growing up in Kentucky? I was in a little town. Um, we were two hours away from Nashville, Tennessee. So that was where the airport was. That was where the fancy shopping was. That was where fancy big nights out several times a year might be. Um, but I grew up in a very small town. Um, it had been a coal town and coal had left us. We'd run out of coal. Uh, the mall that I grew up going to had all these cracks in the ceiling and in the walls because it literally was built on top of a coal mine and was slowly sinking <laughs> into a coal mine wow. as many of the houses in my town did over the course of the years um so that you know that was there and i enjoyed living there but i had no desire to stay there um, my mother recently passed um literally like three weeks ago oh, i think it's thank you uh i think it's very possible that i will never go back to that town again wow just because there's no reason to not because i hate it or have any aversion to it but 
you know, I just don't see much reason to go back. <laughs> um, so was your family involved in the coal industry or what, what brought them to a small Kentucky coal mining town? Yeah, they were just small town people. My mom grew up very poor um, on a subsistence farm where her dad uh, was a subsistence farmer, just growing food and pigs and whatever to survive. Uh, and then working also in a union Chrysler plant in mm -hmm. St. Louis throughout large parts of the year. And then my dad actually that part of the family was kind of well-to-do, uh, I guess, as they said more often back then. <laughs> but uh, his father and grandfather had been in the coal industry on the owner's side. And um, so, yeah, we had a lot of involvement with coal. My dad uh, raised me visiting coal mines and uh, riding around in trucks where the tires were like 10 or 12 feet tall on these massive trucks that were just carrying tons and tons of coal. And yeah, just being in the coal mines was kind of how I was raised. And it was a thing that most people don't get to see, but they should, cause it's cool. And then, um, and I honestly, I'm not a big fan of coal mining. I'm more environmental than, than my father was, <laughs> uh, but also there are good sides to it too. You can see where, um, I remember there are lands today that I grew up going to that were massive strip mines, right? And what a strip mine is, there's an underground mine where you burrow into the ground. Uh, and, you know, we see that in the movies and whatever. And there's a strip mine where they do it all on the surface and it's massive holes in the ground, right? That might be, there might be a hole in the ground the size of a small city. Mm -hmm. And we had several of those. We did a lot of strip mining, a lot of underground mining. But then those strip mines, um, largely because of activists, uh, years after they were created, used to be they would dig a hole and it would stay there forever. Now, today, if you're a mining company and you dig a hole the size of a city, you have to fill it up and reclaim the land when you're done. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of amazing to see these things that I grew up seeing as a hole. And now it's a big, beautiful green pasture. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I have images, and correct me if, if I'm wrong, I have images of, of you and your friends running around in fields amongst trees, creeks, yep. exploring yep. kind of rotten, abandoned uh, sheds and buildings out that have yes. been less like that's that's my image. I think of you were Ken there, Jeremy. It, that's my image of Kentucky is is. As, well, as a young person. Um, so that's, that's cool. A lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. What a great, what a great way to um, grow up. It was, but I was glad to go. <laughs> so you left and, and you ended up in, in uh, Missouri, Missouri. At the University of Missouri, Columbia, which at the time had two distinctions that were attractive to me. It was the number one journalism school in the world. It's the oldest journalism school in the world. The very first journalism school was founded here in Columbia, Missouri. Wow. And it was at that time, Playboy had just named it the number one party school in the country. <laughs> <laughs> and fortunately, my mother did not know that. <laughs> uh, but those two sealed the deal and I actually didn't apply anywhere else. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so when you ended, let's fast forward to when you ended up in Idaho and you you got a diagnosis. Um, yes. and I, I kind of, I feel like I remember that. Like, I feel like I remember learning about that. Right. Cause small community, small town. Yep. I mean, we ran in the same political circles, work circles. Um, and I, rem I remember, I remember that being really scary. Like I was, I was kind of yeah. like, wow, that's intense. And I, I have a disability. I use a wheelchair. And I just remember when you learned about that and then when other people learned about that. And I just yep. remember I didn't know a lot about it. And I was really, really kind of scary to me. So I can't imagine what that was like for you to just sit in an office and have somebody say, hey, like we figured out what's going on. Like talk a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah it was interesting. Um, I should have been diagnosed in 2000, but I was misdiagnosed. Um, my initial symptoms 
where my leg would drag. Um, I didn't have as much strength in my legs. Mm -hmm. Um, it all related to things like that. So in 2000, I was diagnosed with a back problem and sent to get physical therapy. And the way MS works, it gets bad to some degree, and then it gets better mm -hmm. to some degree. The problem might come and then it goes and you're getting a little bit worse every time, but especially in the beginning, it's so small uh, for many people uh, that you don't even necessarily think about it. So what would happen is I would, um, my legs would get to where one of the leg, my legs was dragging um, or I would have real trouble walking. And then I would go back to the physical therapist and I would do all my exercises and all my symptoms would go away. And so I thought, okay, I'm just, I'm doing my exercise. And then I would get lazy and I would stop doing my exercises. And at some point the extra, the symptoms would all come back. So I would do my exercises again and they would go away. <laughs> and it did that over a course of three years where I was just blaming myself for being lazy. Um, but in fact, I was having uh, relapses mm -hmm. of my MS that were getting disguised by this misdiagnosis. And so then I was diagnosed for sure in 2003, unfortunately pretty quickly because of a thing called an optic neuritis that if you have it, you just almost certainly have MS. And um, so I got diagnosed and then I ended up getting on medicine and uh, we applied for the insurance. I had literally just gotten on insurance um, like a month or two months before. Oh, wow. And this was back when um, pre-existing conditions were not covered. Right. So they could reject you for a pre-existing condition at that time, which I think they mostly can't do that now. Um, but I remember I got my insurance and my medicine was going to cost about $17,000 a month for just one of the prescriptions I had to take. And I turned it into my insurance and my insurance rejected me completely <laughs> saying, you must have known you had um, MS. We reject it. This is a pre-existing condition. And I was able to fight it. But I remember when we got that letter rejecting us, knowing that my condition was going to cost us a couple of hundred thousand dollars a month. Um, my wife opened that letter and collapsed on the floor in tears. Mm. God bless her, just crying, because she's now thinking that if we're going to help Sean in the way we need to, it's now going to cost $200,000 or more a year. And I don't know about you, Jeremy, but that kind of bill is not real doable oh, yeah. <laughs> for us out of nowhere. Yep. And um, But like I said, we fought it. We got it taken care of. It just always does remind me, and I think your listeners, some of your listeners are really going to understand this uh, from their own experience. I always think about what about those families and those individuals um, who may not have the education, may not have the fight, the being used to arguing about things, may not have connections with people who can help them. And there are so many things that I had behind me that helped me fight mm -hmm. and then get my insurance and i guarantee you if they're de denying if they were denying some percentage of people there's some percentage of those people who just don't have the wherewithal to fight about it you bet so that's one of the things i always think about with our insurance and also how fortunate i am but fortunately it all worked out i'm now my bills are closer to half a million a year wow um with a few thousand of that coming out of my pocket and the rest coming out of the insurance that covers me. Wow. Yeah. Well, your, your story about the misdiagnosis or the, the long road to di diagnosis is so common. I think that when it comes to these neurological issues, it does, it does take an incredible amount of time to figure yep. out what's going on. I, I remember, you know, when I was trying to figure out what was going on with me, same thing, you know, they threw around, MS and, and a bunch of other, you know, diagnoses that weren't right. Um, and that's really frustrating. You know, it's, it's kind of weird. 
you, you might get a, a, a diagnosis that you don't want is better than a diagnosis is better than no diagnosis at all. Right. Cause it's, yes. at least you know what you're, you're up against. Yeah. Or a wrong diagnosis or. Yeah. 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 So God bless them. Most doctors do their best. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you get a diagnosis and what, um, I mean, what was your thought process? Like, how did you manage that? Like, did you, you know, how'd you work through kind of coming to terms with that if you had to? Well, I have what seems to be a very unique approach to pretty much everything. Every doctor I've ever had um, has said in one way or another that I'm the most optimistic patient they've ever had. Um, and I wouldn't put it that way, but I just very much, I mean, this was, I had a great childhood. I had parents who supported everything that I did. I didn't have any major traumas. So I'm not bragging in any way. I'm very lucky I get that. But I just always assume that one way or another, even if it's not quite the way I like it, everything is going to work out and I'm going to keep moving forward. And that's really the way it's always been with the MS. So when I got MS, it probably, you know, knowing how I deal with these things, it probably took me a week or two of letting myself be bummed out about it. But mostly I was just like, okay, so what's next? Mm -hmm. Which was when I became a wheelchair user years later, which I wasn't at first, mm -hmm. um, but I did. And I went from like Monday, not being a wheelchair user to the next morning, my legs didn't work mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. at all, which led to again, a week or two or three weeks, whatever, of being in a cranky mood about it and trying to get information and whatever. But I just figured, you know, we're going to make this work. And that's just always worked really, really well for me by the way i'll tell you another story that i bet a lot of our readers would be our listeners would be interested in and they've all got their own stories too um i was married to my wife now different than the one that i moved around the country for um i was married to lee and it was one day to the next i did i woke up the next morning and my legs did not work at all um and so we had to get that figured out and we fairly quickly, within a week or two, figured out that there was a drug called Acthar, A-C-T-H-A-R, that had a 50-50 chance of helping me, of allowing me to walk again. And so the doctor said, let's get this prescribed. Sean, it's going to be $60,000 for 10 doses that you'll take over 10 days. It's injected over 10 days and it's going to be $60,000. So let's see if we can get your insurance company to pay for it. And then you'll have a 50, 50 chance of it working. So let's see what happens. My mother said, Sean, if I have to mortgage the house, whatever, if the insurance mm -hmm. won't pay for it, I'll pay for it. You know, my mother's always saying stuff like that. <laughs> I'll, I'll drive to Canada to get marijuana. And, you know, it's like that. <laughs> uh, which of course is not a big deal now. Um, but uh, this drug Akthar, just a couple of months previously, there'd been a big story about Akthar in the New York Times because just a couple of months earlier, Akthar had cost five hundred, uh, cost fifty dollars. Oh wow! Right, so it's going to cost me sixty thousand dollars. A few months earlier, it had cost. $50 what? and it was used often to treat some situation that babies had. So it was very often used. So that same um, 10 days course of it cost about $50, treated the babies and whatever they had. And then they discovered that it had this semi-miraculous effect for certain people with certain effects of MS and this kid, I say kid because that's kind of what he was, but this rich 25-year-old kid 
um, who was getting involved in the pharmaceutical oh, industry. Not kind of phar pharma, bro. I believe it's the same guy. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, bought this drug for $50 and cranked it up to 60,000. And that's exactly what happened. Wow. And so fortunately my insurance company paid for it uh, after I had to fight about it again. And then I was one of the 50% who was able to walk again after taking that medicine. I mean, it was just wow. absolutely amazing. And far too many of the people listening to us today have had similar experiences or had an experience and for whatever reason, they weren't able to fight in the ways that I was and maybe didn't have the good luck that I did. Yeah, that's a big thing with our centers for independent living across the country is self and systems advocacy and helping yeah. people um learn the skills and the confidence to advocate for themselves in institutions like the healthcare setting, essentially. Yeah. It's a big problem. Yeah, I would argue that's one of the very best things because none of, I, I have been at various points pretty involved with um, our center for independent living here in Columbia, Missouri. And um, you know, it's not like you guys are just dripping with money all over the place and you've got so much need one of the most important things you're able to do is to teach people to advocate for themselves, to leverage their insurance, to lever, leverage state resources, federal resources, charitable resources, all of those things to do all of those things that you can't help them with, but you can help them get them for themselves. Yeah. So when you, so you eventually did end up using a wheelchair on the regular. How long did yes, that medication I'm sitting. work? Do I? How long did that medication work? Uh, it worked for quite a while. Um, here's another thing that I believe I have discovered, and it makes me very mad at my doctors. Um, I have not had a relapse in maybe 10 years. But what I did not understand until the last few years is that I have two problems and an awful lot of your people have these same two problems. They have whatever the problem is, say with their nervous system that causes weakness in their legs or their arms or whatever. And then they have the subsequent weakness that comes because they're not using their muscles as much as much that comes from very slow atrophy mm -hmm. of those muscles. And I believe that most of the um, loss of muscle that I've had over the last decade is more because I didn't know how to exercise myself and didn't understand how important it was. And the doctors didn't understand. They never told me to. Mm -hmm. You know, I would say, should I be doing lots of exercise? And they'd say, sure, why not? <laughs> not going to hurt. And so I'm in a process now of trying to recover a lot of the loss. So what happened was um, use the wheel. I was permanent in the wheelchair, took the drug. It basically made me just a very part-time wheelchair user. But then over the years, I went down mm -hmm. and um, in my ability to move. And so today, and so what I've seen is month after month, year after year, I would need the chair more and more. And today I mostly use the chair, but I really think that in a couple of years, I'll be using it dramatically less mm -hmm. than I am today because I'm going to be able to recover a lot of that muscle loss. I may not be able to get the nerve loss back, but I can get the muscle loss. So, you know, maybe I'm wrong and that's fine, but maybe I'm right. And I might be working a lot better here in a couple of years. You sound like the most optimistic patient in the world. <laughs> I'm pretty optimistic. <laughs> you know, there are two kinds of optimism, Jeremy. There's things are going to work out for me. And that's the kind of optimist somebody is. That's not the kind of optimist I am. There's things are going to work out how they're going to work out. And I'm going to make it work out for me no matter what. Yeah. And that's that's how I prefer to look at things. Yeah. You know, my legs are going to do what they do. And I'm going to figure out how to do what I need to do. And, you know, it's just like I've got a job now that I don't need my legs for. Right. Yeah. It's amazing how many things 
you can do and not need your legs or be sitting while you do it. Yeah. Yep. In fact, we do many, many things sitting all the time. Um, it's yeah. So, okay. So you, you're in Idaho and then you end up going to Missouri. Yep. I went back on the campaign trail. I started out in Ohio, did a race there, then came back to Missouri and did a race there and uh, in a different part of Missouri and then made it back to Columbia, Missouri, um, where I've been since then. Okay. And, and so let's talk about the book. Um, yeah. You started this, this has kind of been a journey. It sounds like this has been in the works for a long time. At what point? Yeah, like eight years. Yeah, eight years. Like, like what was the, the impetus for, for writing this? I mean, did you, what, why? Well, somewhere along the line, I heard about a guy that most of the people watching this are never going to have heard of, uh, Justin Dart. Um, I learned about him and started reading about him where I could find him. There really aren't that many places. There's, there is no book written about Justin Dart. Justin Dart is basically the Martin Luther King of the disability rights movement. Mm -hmm. um, it is very possible that without Justin Dart, there would be no Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, it very likely wouldn't have happened when it did. It very likely wouldn't have happened at all. Uh, he was the grandson of Charles Walgreen, the guy who founded Walgreen's drugstores uh, that all of us, most of us in, in every town we're in, there are two or three Walgreens at least. Mm -hmm. And so he grew up incredibly rich. And then he um, just has this great story that includes being rich, that includes doing lots of drugs, that includes orgies, that includes starting companies in Mexico and starting companies in Japan and doing all these great things and then having this massive revelation and realizing that he needed to be doing something important for the world and, and being more of a Gandhi and less of this playboy, you know, <laughs> throwing his life away kind of, but making lots of money. You know, he had this, it's just an incredible story. Uh, that led to him ending up being the Martin Luther King of our movement. Mm -hmm. And um, it was just such a good story that needed to be told. I started uh, to write a book about him. And then that evolved into being a book about overall the disability, disability history, right? It started to be about, maybe it'll be about the whole disability rights movement. Maybe it'll be about ADA. And it grew over those years to being about really the Revolutionary War to today, and what is the disability history that's important for us to know in that span of time? Wow, I I obviously in in the work in the line of work I do have heard about Dust, Justin Dart, and you know we have pictures up on our website and in our offices, and um, but I had no idea of the you know not sketchy but kind of the. <laughs> the you know the the, well, great. the the underbelly of Justin Dart like wow I mean I love it I absolutely love it um, there yeah. couldn't be a better story about uh, about someone like that than his story and I think it's and you 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 talked about how the ADA may have not passed and you talk yeah. about how instrumental he was. And it's an interesting story because he, you know, we, we hear that a lot about Martin Luther King, right? And there's a lot, there's millions of people who are behind that movement, but he was, yep. he was the face of it. He was the speaker. He was the person who really represented the movement. There were other people for, for sure, but in popular culture and history, that's, that's who we recognize as a key, key figure. Um, yep. Justin Dart, same thing. And I think what's the most fascinating about that is, is he is a person who had all of these resources and these connections and these relationships with people in power. And yep. when he ended up in a chair, when he ended up with a disability, he leveraged all those relationships to ultimately be sitting next to George Bush senior signing in July 26th, what, 1990, signing 
that yep. bill into law. And exactly. And it, it, you know, often you will hear his, you're, you like history. And so you've heard the great man theory and you will hear people push back on that theory because, you know, well, those pyramids wouldn't have been built if, you know, millions of slave laborers weren't, weren't right. there doing it. Right. So how much did that one single person actually do? Um, I would say maybe the UFOs and the aliens built the pyramids, but that's another podcast. Um, <laughs> yes. But uh, I want to hear that podcast. Yeah, too. I know, me too. Um, but but at the end of the day, it really it it was so close. The capital yep. the capital crawl where people physically crawled up the steps of the Capitol building. That whole protest was an effort to make sure that the ADA signing actually happened because they were. They weren't yep. sure it was going to happen. And and really, at the end of the day, it was a combination of the persistence of individual people, millions of people across the country. But it was this unique individual with these relationships that got the conversation in the front door. Yeah, well, you know, Justin, um, his dad, Justin Dart Sr., was a very wealthy man. He ended up building a Fortune 500 com company. After getting his start in Walgreens, he built this large multinational amazing thing um, but he was in um, what was commonly known as the kitchen cabinet for Ronald Reagan so Justin's dad helped persuade Reagan to run for governor of California and then was instrumental in getting him to run for president of the United States mm -hmm. and played a role in getting him elected and so when Justin was trying to get things done for people with disabilities Reagan answered the phone wow. when he called. And then he knew George Bush Sr. when he called. And there were several people who, if not for them, there likely would be no ADA. So if there'd been no Justin, there would be no ADA. If there'd been no George Bush Sr., you know, we've all got our politics and we love George Bush Sr. or we hate George Bush Sr., but if you're a person with disabilities, there almost certainly would not have been an ADA without George Bush Sr. If anybody else had been president, it probably would not exist today. Yeah, it's but so it, interesting. Yeah. And also interesting that that such a progressive, far reaching and by far reaching, I mean, in, into business, into government and not just into these institutions, but people had to spend money yep. um, to have such a revolutionary law passed a cultural culture changing law by an administration that had just come out of another administration that basically was responsible for deinstitutionalizing all kinds of people putting people out yep. on the street and and kind of attacking the social support systems that folks with disabilities relied on. So it was, it was, it's an, it's an interesting historical contradiction. Absolutely. It is. And all those things are covered in my book. That is so interesting. So, okay. That's kind of, that's the front end of this, but let's start at a place most people don't hear a lot about and uh, is really even more interesting. I think is this, this deeper history of, of disability and, particularly particularly when it comes to the intersection of disability and military conflicts, because military yeah. conflicts are where we see the rapid, um, rapid development of medical technology, of life-saving technology, um, and all of these things. And that created a, a contradiction in and of itself because we were bringing people back from wars who were alive but disabled and they had an expectation that they were going to be a part of the society that they went to war to defend. And it wasn't always very accessible for people. So where do you want to start in that conversation? Well, you know, that goes all the way back to the beginning, to the Revolutionary War. The earliest um, disability-related laws um, and benefits of any kind came from the Revolutionary War and for returning soldiers and then from the Civil War. And each war and conflict that we had led to greater advances 
uh, in treatment, in um, allowing people to find ways to be involved and get job training and rehabilitation and all those things, all of it in the beginning came from the wars that we fought, if not for people saying, well, of course, they're veterans. Of course, they put their lives on the line for us. Of course, we need to find ways for them to address their injuries and to reintegrate back into society in, in a, a full and complete way. Um, if not for them, I don't think we'd be having this conversation today. Yeah. And, and I think the, in, in modern cultural memory, societal memory, I think um, the movie that Tom Cruise was in, Born on the Fourth of July, yeah, uh, that was a really powerful movie. Uh, I remember when I saw that. I I don't remember what year it came out. I don't think I had been in a chair for very long, and that was kind of a, a brutal movie to watch. Just oh, just as just the, I mean, just like the 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 quality of care, the barriers, the type of you know chairs that people had access to, just how undignified and and just brutal is the only word I can think about. And that was in the, that was in like the sixties, not in the 1890s. And, right. and, and, and that is probably one of the most common cultural memories about how wars have intersected with disability um, in, at least in our country, I think. Um, what did talk a little bit about maybe world war two, which is which is in and of itself interesting because, you know, you think about. I always take great pride in the fact that Franklin Delano Roosevelt had a disability and he was like instrumental in putting the boot on the neck of the Nazis. And for some reason, I just I absolutely I love that. Right. Like there's. Sure. And 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 people coming out of World War Two and World War One, but particularly World War Two, we really started to see a ramping up of technology and battlefield medicine and all of these things. Speak a little bit about that. Was there anything you wrote about that really stood out in terms of people or stories? Oh, absolutely. Well, the whole idea of rehabilitation, rehabilitative medicine came out of World War Two, And um, Rusk, I'm blanking on his first name all of a sudden, um, but Rusk, who created the Rusk Rehabilitation Centers, uh, which there happens to be one here in Columbia, Missouri, but they're all around uh, the country, um, and today are still considered the very epitome of rehabilitative medicine, um, absolutely came from World War II. Uh, and now, um, and then it expanded in, in the Vietnam War, it expanded uh, in uh, Afghanistan and in uh, Iraq. Uh, but just that whole idea of really it was bringing lots of dis different disciplines of medicine together to help people rehabilitate their their muscles, their psyches, every part about their whole being to get them back, uh, honestly, in many ways, into the workforce. We want these men and women, mostly it was men at that time, but men and women back into the workforce. Um, but on the softer side, we want to get them back into life. We want to get them to have families. We want them to build their communities. And we want to be the kind of country that makes this possible. And yeah, all of, so much of that came because of World War II. And then the Korean War and then Vietnam. And Vietnam, oh. Vietnam, I think, is another that that was the board on the Fourth of July movie. And that was really where um I feel like the the move, I guess what we would call the movement started to maybe it was the intersection of the civil rights movement. And, the, and yeah, the, really the, more than anything, it came about related to the civil rights movement. Um, you know, the independent living movement really started in Berkeley, California. The disability rights movement really came directly out of the civil rights movement. Um, the independent living movement, which was kind of part and parcel with um, 
the disability rights movement started at Berkeley, California, with a guy named Ed Roberts, who you and I talk about being wheelchair users, and we are, life is tough, and of course, you know, we've got all of our things that you and I can complain about, but Ed Roberts was quadriplegic, and the way he moved and anything he did was basically what he could do with his mouth. Right. So he had a wheelchair that allowed him to move from place to place with his mouth. If he typed or wrote or did anything like that, it was with something he was holding with his teeth. Um, And he was absolutely the the originator and the first um, real major leader of the independent living movement. And all of that that and then the disability rights movement, all of it came out of what people with disabilities saw um, that people of African-American heritage were able to accomplish through the civil rights movement. And they said, you know, we want to do that too. And it just, it was just amazing. And such great stories, so many incredible people. They're funny. They're accomplishing amazing things. Um, And really they created the world that makes it possible for you and I to go to work every day and have jobs and contribute and do our own part to make the world better, which would be so much harder if Ed Roberts hadn't started the independent living movement. Yeah. I, you know, I've, I've, I've talked to some, some of the characters that have been involved in, in this movement for, you know, back in the day, Tom Olin, one of them who is a a photographer who you might know, he took, the uh, capital call, capital crawl photos, and has documented over the years the disability rights movement. And um, him and and a few other folks I talked to about uh, traveling um, around the United States back back in the day, like in the '60s and '70s, and um, just what it was like to 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 travel, you know, I mean, there wasn't really probably a really great interstate system. You know, you were going from state highways to these right. little towns. I mean, even today, little towns can be not very accessible, right? Like with restrooms and ramps yep. and things like that. And so I'm thinking about the, this cast of characters driving from community to community, uh, rabble rousing, uh, you know, other people to get involved in the movement and just what, an experience that must have been how incredible of an experience that and trying of an experience that must have been but it's certainly you've got to have a you have to if you if you need anything you need a sense of humor (laughs) yeah they did and it was just the guts that they showed you've you've referenced the capital crawl a few times man anybody who has a disability anybody who loves somebody with a disability they need to know what the capital crawl was And that literally happened a few months before the ADA passed. It was not sure that the ADA was going to pass. It actually looked like it was faltering and the Americans with Disabilities Act wasn't going to go. And a couple of hundred people literally climbed up the hundred and whatever concrete steps up the side of the United States Capitol. They threw away their wheelchairs, their crutches, their walkers. One of the most famous was a a young girl of six years old who said, if it takes me all day, I'm going to get to the top of these steps. I mean, it's just such an amazing story that really should inspire all of us to want to do amazing things for the next generation after we're here. Yeah, it is amazing. So, so we've talked about the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, um, up through Vietnam, um, up to the ADA. And there is one I do. I do want to ask you about the reauthorization of the of the 1973 Rehabilitation Act. And if you wrote about the any of the characters who were involved in that sit in in the federal building in San Francisco. Um, and, and what happened there, particularly, you know, the collaboration with other underrepresented groups of people. Um, I did, 
write about that a bit, probably not as extensively. And it sounds like you know some things that I don't know about that. It just really was amazing that um, that protest. Just, you know, you think about it. Um, I was involved in a sit-in in college and there were probably 50 or 60 students, but none of us used wheelchairs. None of us had to figure out how we were going to get to be at the place where we were going to do the sit-in. None of us chained our wheelchairs to the building. I mean, just these, the, the imagery is so powerful and the impact that it had on decision makers and then just regular people who didn't understand what was going on. And maybe they didn't think about people who were wheelchair users in the same way. Um, and it just, it gave them a whole different view of what should be happening and just is amazing. Yeah. And, and, you know, some folks think, you know, like you, you and I even could, could be like, well, we're going to go to a protest or a sit in and, you know, there might be some risk for us, um, discomfort, you know, maybe we get a talking to at work or something if we missed work or, but for a lot of the folks who were at this protest at this federal building, which was the longest occupation of a federal building in, in U.S. history. Um, and a lot of these folks were dealing with significant disabilities. I mean, they, they needed lots of support, direct care worker support. They needed to be able to sleep somewhere where it wouldn't, you know, injure them through the night being on a, a hard surface or something like that. Right. Um, you know, you've got issues with staying hydrated, with staying, you know, keeping your nutrition up so that you've got good skin health and that you're just generally you're, you're, you know, you're, um, strong and robust enough, um, to be able to do something like that. And, and it, it's a whole nother level because I think a lot of the folks who committed to that, there was so much uncertainty around what would happen ultimately but at the end of the day, just the personal physical risk that people took to put themselves in harm's way, it was it was significant. It was it, it was the kind of thing to me that that if something went poorly for somebody, that could be a death sentence. Right. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. From a medical perspective. And so I, I just have always been kind of blown away, uh, particularly at and I've mentioned this, I think, on other episodes, but particularly at how the disability rights movement was also supported by um, other groups like the Black Panthers who showed up to make sure that people had food and water um, and other resources. So you saw the, the kind of intersection of these different, these different groups all, you know, all fighting for a, a, fair, a fair shot at a good life in, a, in this country. And that that always kind of stuck and resonated with me um, as an interesting part of that story and an interesting sit in just in general. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, Judy Human uh, is one of the greatest advocates we ever had uh, who passed some months ago. Yeah. Uh, but she she was involved in all of that, was a leader and uh, just an amazing person. I hope people read about Judy Human's story, um, everything from. Many of us have seen the documentary Crip Camp, and Judy Human attended Crip Camp, a camp for people with various disabilities, quadriplegic disabilities, um, significant MS situations, um, all kinds of different things that put them in very kind of not not dire situations, but with very significant disabilities, and gave them a summer camp and what was born from that summer camp uh, and then is is uh, detailed later in the movie Crip Camp, which was their word, you know, not outsiders calling them Crips, right. but it was them, you know, taking ownership of that word and saying, all right, we're a part of Crip Camp. But some of our greatest um, uh, advocates attended that camp as just a camp person like Judy Human did. She's got a level of quadriplegia. And then she did that. And then she was a part of the independent living movement. She was a 
She went to Berkeley as a staff member. She has been one of the most important uh, advocates over the last, I don't know, 60 years or so. Uh, and, you know, these are the kinds of people that we really need to know about. We need to be able to celebrate these people in the same ways that we do so many others, working with women, working with African-Americans, working with, you know, every other movement we've had. Yeah. And if 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 any of the audience tuning in has not not experienced Crip Camp, you absolutely have to. It is it is an incredible uh lens an ex- incredible insight into kind of the genesis of the community of people who again I'll use the term rabble rouser it was yeah. it was it was this this community that formed of folks with this all across disability and they were in large part instrumental and played key roles in the disability movement up and through the passage of the ADA and it's just an absolutely fascinating movie um i love that movie and fun it's so so fun fun and so funny so this is not one of those things where this is going to class this is a a wonderful hour and a half or so of somebody's life to to see this movie and and there, there were so i think there's kind of a interesting connection here between that group who made connections in and out of crip camp but also the other groups of people around the country that made significant change. And I think about the gang of 19. And I think you wrote about that in this book. Can you talk a little bit about the gang of 19? Uh, Well, just another group. um, And Judy Human was one of those. Um, You know, they they were one of the very earliest groups in the disability rights movement. And everything was about, you know, so much was about federal law and getting federal law to change, but getting it to change on a local level. And really, that was something that had not been done before. And it was being done by people who so many believed could do nothing for themselves. And, you know, really the Gang of 19 was one of the very first groups of people that proved, oh, look, these are people who can do amazing things. They can stand up, forgive the, the imagery of that, but they can stand up for themselves, even if they can't stand themselves. They can change the world. Let's help them change the world. And yeah, without the Gang of 19, there probably would have been several of the next stages of disability, uh, you know, rights fighting that would not have existed. They paved the way for so many. And, and, and pardon my ignorance because I am not, I have not read that chapter, but is that pertaining to transportation issues in Colorado? No, that was in San Francisco. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. And uh, they were in a federal building and it, it was dealing with uh, a variety of federal issues okay okay Okay. yeah now now everything going on the transportation stuff going on in colorado and the creation of the atlantis community and the birth of adapt um that is just great storytelling um and just it's amazing what they were able to do and you know most an awful lot of those people who were a part of that are still around today some of them are still fighting some of them are retired and excited to share their stories I've, I've actually met several of the people who were involved in um, chaining themselves to buses <laughs> in wow. Colorado. And again, it's one thing if, you know, my sister chains herself to a bus. She doesn't have any disability that we know of. It's another if I do with my wheelchair. That's a pretty powerful image. <laughs> yeah. And for folks tuning in in Colorado, this this was a community of folks with disabilities who were trying to get the transit authority um, in, I believe Denver. Um, yes. and they were, they were trying to f- basically force the government to make transportation accessible. And I believe that they, in addition, yeah, in addition to probably chaining themselves to buses, you, you, there are really classic photos of, of folks, 
uh, with disabilities kind of laying down their bodies in front of buses, um, preventing yep. them from even using them. Because if, if they weren't usable for our community, they shouldn't be usable for the, for the rest of the community, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah, these were some hard, hardcore people. Yeah. Hear me? <laughs> awesome. So awesome. Um, okay. Is there, is there any other person or obviously, you know, I'm, jumped on this podcast interview with you kind of spur of the moment when we reconnected and you sent me, um, um, the connection, the link to your, your new book and wanted to promote that and wanted to make sure people knew how to get that. Um, and before we share that information, are there, is there anything else that you've written about that really jumps out as a powerful story, particularly one that, that you're, you're sure that most people haven't heard of? Um, and I think there's a lot. I looked at the list of of individuals, and I have a lot of learning to do um, myself here, and I'm looking forward to it. But I'm just curious if there's anybody else on this list who you're like, oh, wow, I, I had no idea this person existed and what they did, and it was incredible. Well, there, there are an awful lot of those stories. Um, what I would point some people to, and some people who are bigger sports fans than I am are going to know more about this than I did. But I've got several, like eight or nine stories of world-class athletes who had all kinds of major disabilities, including uh, one young man who is still, um, you know, I'm 52, so he's a young man to me, and he's still active as an athlete um, who does not have arms or legs and is, ama- is able to do amazing things. And it, with technology, it's amazing what we're able to do. And so I really would encourage people to, um, you know, flip ahead. That's one of the great things about this book is you can read the whole thing all the way through. You can flip around, read what's exciting to you. Take a look at there's a whole section on sports and sports people who are doing things that in a million years I couldn't have done when my legs worked perfectly. You know, it's just amazing uh, the example they set for everybody and the will that they you that they are then able to take and make their bodies do these amazing things when we thought their bodies could do very little wow well i am looking forward to reading this all the way through and and i really appreciate that you wrote this and um are out there sharing it and talk a little bit about where where we can find this and i'll put a link in the episode of course um to the link that you sent me, uh, but just talk a little bit about what what you're what you're raising money for around this book and um, kind of what that effort is is all about. Yeah, I'm. You know, I just wanted to make this book about doing good, and so um, you know, you can find it at disabilityhistorybook.com. Um, just go to disabilityhistorybook.com right now. That's a crowdfunding campaign. Um, any profit that comes in above paying for the books um, is going to a fund at the Salvation Army uh, for people with disabilities who are also facing poverty. And I just did that because I just, I wanted the money to go to that sort of thing. So I don't make any money from this at all. Um, I just want to try to do some good things for people. Start getting these books out there. Because here's the thing, Jeremy, if I said, let's get together your 10 favorite books on a general disability history in the United States. That doesn't exist. And so I wrote this book in large part because it is one of the only books of its kind out there. And we should have so many more out there. We should have so many books. There should be books being written every year about all the different aspects of disability history. And that's really, if I have a cause with this book, it's I want people to look at this book and say, you know what, I could do a better job than this. (laughs) I could write an incredible book. I'm going to write my own. Or you know what, I want to write a book about Justin Dart. Or I want to write a book about the Capitol Crawl, about specific instances in history. Um, I just want to start inspiring others because 
the field of disability history is so rich and we need to be doing so much more. So go to disabilityhistorybook.com, read my book, and then write your own. I, I absolutely love that. As as someone who got a graduate degree in applied public history, I this is so exciting and so inspiring. Um, you know, I've, I can't go out, run out, and write a book, but it just has my <laughs> it has my wheels turning on some of these elements of the book you wrote and some of the topics that it would be great to do a deep dive in into and yeah. I'm just so, I'm just so appreciative that you you did this. This is no small feat. Um, it, it's it is hard work and takes so much discipline to to pull something like this off. And I know many many people try, and many many people fail. And I'm just really glad that you succeeded and that you're going to share that with us. Um, and I'm just glad Thank that you, yeah, I'm just glad that we were able to reconnect and that you're doing well and you are still loving life as much as you seem to always have and you still have the same infectious uh smile that you always oh. had um and so i'm just really glad that we got to talk and i'm hoping that we stay in touch well i do too jeremy um it's been really cool talking to you thank you so much and thanks for sharing about the book and um i'll look forward to talking again that sounds great. I'll make sure there's a link uh, to the book in the um, in the episode notes. And oh, wow. So folks who tuned in for this, uh, as always, stay independent, Idaho. 